you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Read um, verses 1 through 8 tonight. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. So hear now the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Amen. Uh, we come to a chapter that um, will probably cause no little amount of dispute, maybe not so much tonight, but certainly as we get into the second half of it. But try to keep in mind what Paul is doing in, these, in this letter. Uh, these letters, actually these pastoral epistles, Timothy, both Timothys and Titus, Paul is writing the young pastors to give them directions on how to manage the affairs of the church and how to govern the church. And uh, this chapter begins a new topic, and um, I'm convinced it's uh, directions for public worship. I don't know if I'm going to be able to completely convince you of that, but at any rate, I think this chapter is about worship, what, how worship should be conducted. Particularly tonight, we're going to look at prayer. Uh, chapter one was, in this, was kind of essentially on uh, guarding the preaching and teaching of the church, that it be orthodox and proper, and to work against those who are um, teaching falsehood. This church, this chapter on worship, chapter three, clearly on leadership, who's qualified to be elders or deacons. <clears throat> and then woven really through the rest of the book are a collection of, of wisdom, a collection of instructions that Paul is giving Timothy, both on his own discipline, on how he manages like the widows of the church, uh, different other aspects of church life, how he conducts himself and how he should conduct the uh, work of the church. So tonight, what we're looking at in verses 1 through 8 is his instructions on prayer and, I'm, I believe, prayer and public worship, particularly. It would have some application for the other prayers of our life, our personal prayer lives, our family prayer lives. Uh, so it would have application to other areas. But I think here he's getting at uh, how public worship needs to be conducted and in these eight verses, there are three sections, three main points. One is the uh, 
uh, kind of the content of prayer, what kinds of prayers are to be offered and how they're to be offered. Uh, the middle portion is it's all for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. And then the third portion is who should pray uh, in worship and kind of direct our ways to that. So the first four verses are where he directs prayers, uh, the kind of prayers that are to be made. And he begins with this kind of urging, which Paul is typical of, uh, seems like particularly in Timothy. Uh, first of all, then I urge. So he's, it, it relates to a matter that's important, something Timothy needs to see to it that is um, handled in a proper way. And uh, what ought to happen in public worship is prayer. Uh, So many different resources that I read uh, on both this passage and other things talk about how in evangelical churches, it's pretty common that the pastoral prayer is uh, is either shrunk or it's jettisoned. It doesn't happen anymore. And so prayer in this sense, I mean, it's not that they're not praying at all, but the kind of extended pastoral prayer is, uh, is not done anymore. It's not a part of public worship. There are other things that are going on that are considered <clears throat> more important. And so his instruction on prayer is very significant uh, the prayer that he's urging upon us is that our prayer uh, needs to be more expansive than restrictive. In other words, we ought to be praying for, and several different su- people suggest this, we ought to be praying for not just the particular needs of the, the body, but for the church worldwide, the broader church, the revival of the church, spiritual renewal in us, um, Reaching the unsaved, there needs to be kind of an expansive um, aspect to our prayers. But as you can see in our prayer list, in our bulletin, we're so packed with so many things. And I'm not demeaning that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But it makes it difficult to have the time to pray in an expansive sense. I don't have an answer for that. I'm just kind of... I'm telling you the problem. So uh, we've got to figure it out, I suppose. But at any rate, we, we, the, the challenge here is for us to think more broadly in our prayer life and expand what we're doing, particularly in public worship, and making that a part of it. Um, it's probably no why other churches, some churches, at least in the past history, have had things like prayer meetings. Um, it's interesting how many in Britain had prayer meetings on Saturday evenings. I don't know if you'd give up your Saturday evening to come to a prayer meeting at church. I have a feeling the answer to that would be no. <clears throat> but it's very, it's pretty common when you read that um, the people of God would gather for prayer on Saturday evenings, and that would go a long way to blessing the people on Sunday mornings. So the urgency of we need to do this, the prayers to be offered are given in the next part of verse 1. And there are four types of prayers that he indicates here. Uh, the first is supplications. That, that's a, a kind of prayer that where you're taking the particular needs, like in our lists, and you're bringing them before the Lord. So the first is supplications. The second is prayers. 
And that's the most general word in the New Testament for prayer. And it is kind of covering the whole gamut of confession, of sin, of intercession for people, of adoration, thank, thankfulness, although that's going to come up here. It's uh, that we're engaged in prayer in this broad sense of the word. <clears throat> and it draws our attention to uh, the reality that when we pray, we're coming into the very presence of God. And there needs to be a sense of awe uh, in our prayer life. Uh, the very most important prayer Jesus taught you to pray is, hallowed be your name. And that gives us a sense of what ought to be our attitude, our perspective as we come to prayer. Do we have a, a sense of awe as we come into the very presence of Almighty God? If we were meeting someone of great importance in our society, we would take that seriously. Here's the most important person in all the universe. Do we have that sense of awe and as we come into it, in reverence as we come into his presence? The third is intercessions. It's, uh, again, pleading in the interest of others, kind of a parallel to supplications, but maybe more specific, maybe more spiritually oriented, and then thanksgivings which kind of complete the circle in our prayer. Uh, Samuel Miller, an early Presbyterian leader in the United States, uh, old Princeton theologian in the early 1800s, wrote this about public prayer. He says, A good public prayer ought always to include a strongly marked reference to the spread of the gospel and earnest petitions for the success of the means employed by the church for that purpose. As it forms a large part of the duty of the church to spread the knowledge of the way of salvation to all around her <clears throat> and to send it to the utmost of her power to all within her reach who are destitute of it. So she ought never to assemble without recognizing this obligation and fervently praying for grace and strength to fulfill it. So there's the expansive aspect of our praying prayer life that we ought to have. So those are the kinds of prayers we're to offer. And then it goes on to say, for all people, uh, the um, ESV pretty consistently, at least in this passage, translates it for all kinds of people, <clears throat> for all men. And uh, it, it, it prompts us to think again about when we read these Portions of all people or all men, all kinds of people. What, what, who is it talking about? Is it saying we have to pray for every single person head for head that exists on this whole planet? Uh, and the context in, in, throughout the New Testament uh, directs us to think about how we use these words all. Who, who is it really referring to? Who is it directing our thoughts to? And the context here, particularly in the, um, uh, the verse that follows, is a deciding factor, a prayer for all men, for kings, those in high position, later on for Gentiles. So when he's telling us here we have to pray for all people, <clears throat> all mankind, 
pretty consistently through this little section. He's not talking about necessarily all people head for head. We don't know them. I mean, you could throw out a general prayer, Lord, be with all people. But as the context continues, he's telling us all kinds of people. In other words, the Jews would have been inclined only to pray for Jews. The Gentiles, they were on the outside. Uh, If they prayed, they might have been prayed to their false gods. Who would they have prayed for? Their own group. They might not have gone outside their group. But the one thing about the church is that its ministry goes to every people, nation, and tongue. And I'll read a verse about that here in just a bit. So it's not all men without exception. It's all men without distinction. We pray for all kinds of people. We don't restrict our prayers just to people we like or people we're similar to. We pray for those God brings our way that, to, that have needs. Uh, and we pray for them. And he specifies here specifically for kings and all who are in high positions. All those in authority. And that's a necessary admonition today as, well, as it was in that day. And it's an important admonition. He's going to explain why here in just a moment. It's an important admonition. And it's an admonition we need to take seriously. And the important thing about the admonition is to remember that Paul was writing this in the day when he was imprisoned by Nero, a wicked ruler. So when he prays, he tells us to pray for kings and all those in authority. He's not telling us to pray for those politicians we like. Um, We need to pray for all those in authority. And our prayer doesn't have to necessarily be that God prospers them in what they're doing, especially if what they're doing is contrary to the word of God. But nevertheless, we pray for them. We pray for their conversion, pray for God to restrain their hand when they're doing wicked things, pray for God to use them. But one of the main things we're praying for is that they would, God would use those in authority to create stability in our culture, in our nation, in our community for a purpose. The goal of these prayers, for, especially for those in authority, as it goes, continues in verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. <clears throat> there are two purposes for these prayers for those in authority. The first, there, there are a double set of terms that form two different groups. Uh, the first set are peaceful and a quiet life. We're praying that God uses those in authority uh, to keep order in our society so that we as Christians might lead a uh, peaceful and a quiet life. The first word is communicating the idea of that we are free from outward disturbances. I mean, if there's a riot going on outside your house, I mean, you'll be praying, God help us, but it, it doesn't help the spread of the gospel. It doesn't help in other ways. We, we, we're helped when we're free from outward disturbances. That's the first word. The next word, a quiet life, is that we're free from inner disturbances. 
that our hearts are calm, that our hearts are at peace. We have peace outwardly and we have peace inwardly. And it's not that Paul is encouraging us to have a lazy life, but what he's wanting us to pursue, be interested in, and in our prayer life to contribute to that is that we are living a Christian life where we have outward peace and inward peace and can live that Christian life effectively and fruitfully. And then the second set of terms are to lead a godly and dignified life. Godliness and seriousness, piety and respectability. The life that we pray that we can lead has godliness and holiness in it as one aspect of it and a sense of uh, dignity or seriousness. Now the kids are going to think, well, that's no fun. We need to have a have enjoyment. And that's true. We will and we do. But the idea is that as we exemplify ourselves to the people outside the church, they look at us as people who mean business with life. Um, we mean business as husbands and as fathers, as mothers and, and wives. We mean business as students and kids. <clears throat> it's important to us. It's not that we can't have fun. It's not that we can't enjoy ourselves. In fact, he's going to say in this letter, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. So it's not that we don't have things that we do enjoy and can enjoy in our lives, but we need to have a, a sense of we're about God's business in our life, in our work, in our play, in all aspects of our life. And so we're praying for those in authority so that we can lead a quiet and peaceful life with godliness and dignity about it. And so that other people see the transformation in us compared to those who go about their life and are seeking pleasure in whatever form they can get it. We know there's a higher authority to whom we're accountable. And so these prayers are for that goal and how does God look at these prayers? The, <clears throat> you, you may or may not have been counting my points, but the fifth element of these kind of prayers is how God looks at them. And Paul says in verse three, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our savior. The eye of God looks with favor on this kind of praying. Uh, it pleases him. It's good. It's the quality of goodness to it, but it pleases him. It's appealing to the Lord, uh, our God, that we pray in such a way. And it's uh, good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Here he picks up a term that he used in the first verse of the letter. And God, either as the triune God or God the Father, here is referred to as our Savior. And we know it's the work of the whole triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is accomplishing our redemption But our saving God is pleased with these good kind of prayers. And part of the reason he's, they're good and they're pleasing in his sight is verse four. It is 
helpful and acceptable for the spread of the gospel. Uh, He writes, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So here again, we have that little word, all. Um, And the question is, does God desire the salvation of every single person head for head? Is that what it's getting at here? Is that the point? Uh, And I think we have to see the, the parallels and the connections between these sections of Scripture. He's wanting us to pray for all kinds of people. And here, God desires salvation from uh, all kinds of people, from every language, people, nation, and tongue. Turn to Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. <clears throat> the distinction we would make that I'm trying to make is it's not all men without exception, because we know that all men aren't saved. But it's all men without distinction. We don't pray for a certain group of people. We pray for people from all aspects of life. So Revelation 5, 9, the worship in heaven. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God wants people um, from all parts of the world, from all places in society, to come to know the Lord, to be saved. Uh, And it's clearly revealed that part part of the part of the issue here, if God desires all people head for head to be saved and they aren't, then is the desire of the sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth unable to be fulfilled. And if that's true, then we really should close our Bibles and just go our way. Why pray to him to begin with? But the purpose of the sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth, his desire will be fulfilled. And he wants people from every tribe, language, people, and tongue. Just as a parallel thought, um, in John chapter 1, we have the statement I quoted for you this morning. Jesus was in the world and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. So John and John's writings, particularly, you have these two segments of society that he's focusing on. The world, which in that case is the Gentile world, and his own, which in that case is the people of Israel. And he came to the Gentiles and they didn't know him. He came to his own and they wouldn't receive him. But Jesus is going to save people from both groups anyway and call them to himself. And uh, we have in John 10, when he's talking about his work as the good shepherd, uh, he says, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and them I will bring also. Well, who is this fold? Well, that's his people, Israel. 
Uh, He has other sheep that aren't of that fold, the Gentiles, and he will bring them too. And so his saving grace is going to go to all kinds of people. And uh, without, not without, not all men without exception, but all men without distinction. And what he desires of them, which will be accomplished, he wants them to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Being saved is a typical word for salvation. It's deliverance. It's rescue. He wants to rescue these people from the bondage of sin and the darkness that they're into. And then come into a knowledge of the truth. And the word he uses for truth there is very interesting and significant. The basic Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, from which we get our Gnostics and Gnosticism. But this is a a different word. It's epinosis. And it communicates not just an intellectual knowledge, it's not information. God doesn't want you simply to have information. He wants you to have understanding, a perception uh, that the truth becomes a part of your life and transforms you. Uh, As he As Paul wrote in Colossians 1, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Salvation is not merely knowing something about God. It's for that to take root in your life, for you to have understanding of that. And your salvation is the richness and the fullness of being rescued and having an intimate relationship with God himself. That's part of what it means to be a redeemed person. That you know him, not just intellectually, but relationally. So the first part is the kinds of prayers he wants offered and the purposes of those things. The second main part of of this uh, first section is uh, we see in a sense, a further result of this, the glory of God is revealed through our praying. And we see this in verses five through seven. It begins with, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The glory of God is revealed through our praying and it reveals the unity of the Godhead. There is one God, even though people are saved, from every language, people, nation, and tongue, there's only one God who's over all of them. And there's only one person who is the go-between God and those people, and that's Jesus Christ. So there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul doesn't speak a lot about Jesus as mediator. We have to kind of go to the writer of Hebrews to get a lot more information about that. But Jesus is the one who goes between us and God. The Puritans would talk about how Jesus has one hand on man and one hand on God, and he's drawing them together. He brings God to us. He brings us to God And he stands in the middle and it's all part of his redeeming work. Uh, He endured the curse of the law uh, being made a curse for us or over us. He stands in between. He stands in between God and us. God's wrath justly on us. Jesus 
stands in the gap and provides the way of redemption. He's the one who stands in the middle. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, uh, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So he's a ransom for this same all, these all kinds of men, people from every language, people, nation, and tongue. Uh, He paid the penalty. He redeemed them. He purchased them from sin for God. And God's glory is revealed when we pray, especially when we pray for the work of the gospel. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Uh, We pray that God's name would be hallowed in all the world and believed and obeyed by us and all men. We pray that his will would be done. We pray that his kingdom would come, that, that men from <clears throat> throughout the world would come to know uh, this kingdom, this God who uh, provided this ransom through his son. His, de- his death was substitutionary. He died in our place. We've been reflecting on this quite a bit. And his ransom is proclaimed at the appropriate time. Uh, began particularly uh, with the apostolic message and on uh, on to the present day. It's um, in due season. Well, now is the due season of proclaiming, proclaiming that ransom. It's God knew exactly when that ransom was going to be paid and when it was going to be um, presented. But then Paul explains his role in this um, heralding of the gospel, he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. That's a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. Now you look at that and you wonder, why? who would think he wasn't lying? Well, one of the criticisms, and you read Galatians and you see it very clearly, one of the criticisms of Paul, Corinthians didn't, they had plenty of people criticizing him too. The criticisms of Paul was that he <clears throat> didn't get his apostleship in the right way that he was a spurious apostle and they, his claims of apostleship were false. And so Paul feels the need to get this in here. I'm lying. I'm telling, I'm not, te- I'm, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth as a, as kind of an affirmation in the, one of his arguments in Galatians is to explain how he became an apostle in, contra- in contrast and in connection with the um, 12 of the 11 apostles who were appointed by Christ. So I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul was given this commission uh, that he was to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, which to the Jew would have been quite offensive in that day, which is why the whole idea of of uh, God has desired the salvation of all kinds of people would have been so significant because the Jews were okay with God wanting to save the Jews, but they weren't too keen on God saving the Gentiles. I mean, you just think of some of your Old Testament accounts, uh, the book of Jonah. Uh, God told him to go to Nineveh and preach. Well, he wasn't going to go to Nineveh for anything in the world. So God had to have him thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish and spit up on the land. And so he says, okay, you got my attention. I'll go to Nineveh 
He goes to Nineveh, preaches, and lo and behold, they all repent. What? What is this that's going on? Jonah is furious. Lord, I knew you would be like this. I knew you would have mercy on people. And, uh, and he was just, he was totally angry, went outside to the city to mope. You know the story. Um, God wants salvation to come to all people, whether we feel comfortable with them or not. All kinds of people. And Paul was appointed as a herald for that gospel to the Gentiles. So then we come to the, the last point, the one point that may be a bit controversial, maybe, maybe not. We've been given the, um, the call to prayer. We've been given in the kinds of prayers. We've been given the results of that, the glory of God. Here we're <clears throat> told who is to pray and a little bit more about the conduct of those who are praying. So we have in verse 8, this third part of this first section, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So who, who is it in public worship who is to lead in, in this instance in prayer? Well, the persons to pray in public worship are men. Now, in our gender-confused society, they may not get that. But there are at least three Greek words for men. Uh, there's the word anthropos, which can, is translated sometimes all mankind. And this, we see it used several times in this about all people, all kinds of people. It's a more general word. It doesn't have to mean only males. It can be a word that it's grouping men and women as all mankind together. And it's the context that helps you discern uh, the use of the word. Like uh, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Anthropos, Christ Jesus. Well, he's a man. He's a male. But in other portions of this same text, it's used more broadly. Uh, There's two other words, at least. Uh, andros and an heir, and they're words that can only be used for males. And that's where the text becomes distinctive here. <clears throat> I desire that in every place men should pray. And he's saying that men have the responsibility uh, to pray. Uh, males. It can only mean males. Um, women are not in public worship to lead prayer. And in our society, that's extremely offensive to say that. Um, I'm grateful. I don't think I'm going to be run out on a rail here. You may not like what I'm saying, but I doubt that you're going to riot. But at any rate, the point of this isn't to demean women. It's certainly not to say they don't pray. Certainly not to say uh, they, there's any problem with them being a part of the worship service. It's not demeaning them or their abilities or their, it's, but it's communicating that God has a, an order for society, for the family, for worship that he has ordained. And uh, it's, it's that the men of the church should lead in prayer. And in most contexts, in our context, it's those who are 
uh, officers of the church, those who are ordained, <clears throat> they are the ones who are to lead worship and lead in those prayers. But it's a distinction that's made, and it's going to, the, the contrast is going to come up very uh, um, significantly when we move into the second part of this chapter. As we get into the qualifications for elder and deacon, a husband of one wife, they have responsibilities to exercise. And one of their duties that they're to exercise is to lead the congregation in worship and in prayer. <clears throat> uh, so it's not saying for women, uh, it's not saying for anybody in the church that they're not silently praying along with whoever's leading in prayer, but the person leading in prayer uh, is a man usually in authority. The location is in every place. So in other words, wherever the church is meeting for worship, uh, the leaders of the church should lead the church in prayer. Lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So we have the posture of this particular prayer as lifting up holy hands. Uh, Is Paul authorizing that as the only posture for prayer? Well, if we look at the broad scope of Scripture, we would need to say no, because as you look at the broad scope of Scripture, there's standing, hands lifted heavenward, bowing the head, uh, kneeling, falling face down on the ground, uh, and a few other different kind of postures in prayer. And as one writer says, the important thing is not the posture of the body, but the posture of the heart. I think that's very true. I think um, the posture in prayer does maybe communicate certain things. Like when you're praying at home, you might kneel down beside your bed, uh, uh, an action of humility. Uh, When it comes to the postures of prayer and actions in the church, uh, the raising of hands is pretty common in some of our brothers and sisters' churches around. And um, so I don't want to be just condemning of anybody who does things differently than we do, even though obviously we're right. But the test that I have or the test that I think is important for whatever we do in worship is, uh, does it call attention to itself? This is in worship. You know, you want to do that at home. uh, It's a different thing. But what in worship, does it call attention to itself uh, or does it draw attention to God? Uh, That to me is an important test. I've said this before. If we put a drum set in the front of the sanctuary, would that be blasphemous? Now, some of you are going to quickly say yes. But at any rate, would we would God strike us dead if we did that? No, I don't think so. But the thing that I know is very true, if we put a drum set in the front of the church, the thing that every single person in the room for the entire service, the only thing they're going to think about is the drum set. I could have the best sermon that I've ever preached. And they're going to be thinking there were drums in the church. Or for those who are used to having drums in the church, they come into our church and they say, where are the drums? And the problem is, what, what do these things draw attention to? And I think we have to be 
judicious and careful in thinking about that. I have a paragraph, and I'm not sure who I got it from. Maybe Gordon Clark, maybe George Knight, maybe somebody else. I don't remember. But he writes, The present custom of closing the eyes while folding the hands is of disputed origin. Though unrecorded in Scripture and unknown to the early church, the custom may be considered a good one if properly interpreted. It helps the worshiper to shut out harmful distractions and to enter the sphere where none but God is near. It is, at any rate, far better than some postures of the body that prevail among moderns when prayer is offered. The other thing that he adds about prayer is lifting up hands with uh, holy hands without anger or quarreling. Three characteristics of our coming to God in prayer are holiness. Uh, We ought to be holy in our attitude, outlook, and in life. Without anger, we ought not to have angry thoughts toward other people as we're praying. It would be hard to pray a really good prayer if you were, but he gives that, spells that out. And without quarreling, dialoguing, and this means dialoguing in in a contentious way. It's, It's fine to dialogue and discuss things. We do that and should do that. But this is talking about a dialoguing in a contentious way. And so if our prayers are to honor God and be done in a way that's proper, we need to be holy without wrath and without quarreling. And these characteristics of a prayer life are significant in helping us to pray well. So the directions here, as you read through them on your own and think about them, are directions for how we are to pray, the content of our prayer, and for whom we're to pray, and the goal of them. The goal of our prayer is ultimately to bring glory to God. May you and I be faithful in our prayer lives. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your faithfulness as we've wrestled through some of these verses. May you help us to understand them more clearly and bring glory and honor to you in the way we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.